Hi folks, welcome to the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters, where I am of course joined by Bo, and today we're going to be talking about Henry II, King of England. Uh, and we've talked a lot around Henry II, so there are many previous epochs that you can go and watch. Uh, we'll do Thomas Beckett's uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, yep. and was there another And William one? Marshall. That was it, William Marshall. Um, that we've, so these are all people who are closely connected to Henry II. But for some reason, we didn't focus on the man himself. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Yeah, so for me, the, I'm a big fan of the 12th century. It's maybe a bit of a funny thing to say, but... That's exciting. Part of the course, if you're a history nerd, it's an exciting that's a sort part. of a thing to say. I really like the, the 12th century, uh, the early 13th century. Mm. The reign of Henry II and Richard the Lionheart and John. That's sort of... I, I love that stuff. The really Plantagenets like. were just crazy, mm. weren't they? Great. And Henry II... He's a really, really, really pivotal king. There's no two ways about that. He ruled for quite a while. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it started off the Plantagenet dynasty, which doesn't end until, well, Bolingbroke, 1399. And you could even argue that not until the Tudors, because the House of York and Lancaster are basically cadet branches, cousin branches of the House of Plantagenet. So hmm. you could argue up until Bosworth Field, 1485. So it's a, you know, a fair old innings. Hmm. Um, even if you're not that generous, it's like seven generations sort of thing. So yeah, it's very good. Pretty good, yeah. yeah. Um, so where to start? Like I say, I'm not going to go into much, although we will cover it. All the Beckett saga. Yeah. So go back and look for that one, and it will be mentioned, but not in fantastic amount of detail. His almost never-ending saga of him and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, mm. and uh, just the great figure, possibly or in my opinion, the greatest knight of all time. William the Marshal, hmm. uh, but there's still loads to be said. Um, Nicholas Vincent, the historian, said something like Henry II's reign just saw sort of a crazy amount of turbulence. Hmm. Just the world turned upside down in all sorts of ways a few different times. Um, and he's fantastically powerful as well. He's became easily the most powerful man in Western Europe and arguably the most powerful man, or second most powerful man, maybe, after the Holy Roman Emperor, in all of Europe. Oh, well, depends how you count it, isn't it? There's the Pope, of course. Sure, yeah. But, yeah. Um, how many divisions does the Pope have, famously? And just powerful in all sorts of other ways. I mean, so, for example, how, you know, does your legacy echo through the centuries? You know? Mm. Um, <clears throat> in those terms... He is one of the most important kings of England. Um, things he set up, we still live with in all sorts of ways. Um, I've got loads of quotes from Churchill because we're going back into that sort of string yeah. of things. Um, so, but before I start there, just to say we did Henry the First, and then there's the period of anarchy. I don't think we've done an epoch purely on the anarchy, that of uh, the Empress Matilda, mm. who is. Henry II's mother, and Stephen of Blois. So, just a quick few minutes on that, super quick. Um, Henry I dies. He would have had a son who himself was killed in the White Ship incident. We definitely covered that. Yeah. Um, so there was no male heir. So he tries to get his daughter, Matilda, or Maud, um, to be a queen or a, a female king. It was weird, but there you go. And she, she was an empress simply through dint of having been married to 
the Holy Roman Emperor earlier. She wasn't a true empress in her own right or anything. No. Anyway, one other thing to say here, straight off the bat, is that Henry II and his heirs weren't known as Plantagenet until much later. It comes from their Anjou heritage, his father's side, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, at the time, he was known as Henry fin Fitz Empress, i.e. son of an empress. Yeah. That's what he was known as um, at the time. Um, so another thing I'd like to say right off the bat, I don't know if you remember, because it was quite a few months ago now, maybe a year or more ago now, when we were talking about the, the reigns of, well, when the Anglo-Saxon uh, line ended, the House of Wessex, mm. um, with sort of um, the confessor, and there was some uh, prophecies, whether they're true or not, or it's all said in hindsight, that England, the green tree of England, metaphorically, would never sort of grow and thrive again until its, it, its severed trunk had been reunited. And historians and chroniclers at the time, or not long after, certainly, said that Henry II embodies that hmm. because he is the grandson directly of Henry I. Hmm. So his great-grandfather was the conqueror. Hmm. But then through his mother, uh, in a bit more of a tangential way, is also related to the House of Wessex, ah, the old Anglo-Saxons. Right. It is a little bit more... Well, his mother, his mother's mother was Matilda of Scotland, whose mother was Margaret of Wessex. Right. Who was the daughter of Edward the Exile. So European royal politics... Um, son of Edmund Ironside, who was son of Ethelred the Unready. So it's yeah. a bit, good few generations there, but sorry, I cut but, you off. But it, but it is a definitive linkage. So, you know, yeah. if there was a prophecy, I guess you could see it fulfilled in this. Yeah, if you really tried. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> well, I don't even think you have to try that hard. Right, yeah. Know? He is direct descendant, yeah. no question. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on his mother's side, hmm. he's, you know... Um, you know, his father wasn't a king, but on his mother's side, you know, he's the grandson and great-grandson of, of the Norman conquerors and, and got that, that House of Wessex blood in there as well. So he's got the blood of kings in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah not too far back. And on his father's side, his father was the Count of Anjou, mm -hmm. Geoffrey of Anjou, Geoffrey Plantagenet. Apparently he'd wear a yellow, particular yellow flower, mm. and in French... I won't bother going into it, but in French, it's sort of where the word Plantagenet comes from. Yeah. So that's where that comes from. At the time, they would more often say Angevin rather than Plantagenet. Plantagenet was a bit of a later thing. Um, okay, so we've got like the 20 years of anarchy. Well, after Henry I dies, Matilda and her own cousin, Stephen of Blois, hmm. uh, dispute the throne. And it is about 20 years long. I mean, Henry II here is like about two years old when that kicks off. And in a way, his mother's side of this anarchy, this civil war, is sort of all in aid of him in a way. I mean, she wanted to be queen. Sure. At one point, she did get herself crowned queen in Westminster Abbey, but the Londoners didn't like that, and she was kicked out quite quickly, and um, it's all messy. But in the end, she was sort of too old, really, for if her side did ever win, that she would ever sort of become the monarch. Mm. It was sort of good. After a certain point, once he became old enough... Yeah. And then by the time it does all t come to fruition, he is in his early 20s. Yes. Not, she's, not, she's not going to be the first uh, matriarch who manoeuvres herself to 
be the queen mother. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Tale as old as time. And so by, by the time he is in his early 20s then, um, Stephen of Blois dies of natural causes, probably. That's lucky. And he had a son as well. I, I love these, sorry, just to interrupt, I love these coincidental deaths. Again, these happen all the time, and it's just that people died relatively young in the past because the past was rough, but it always is very coincidental. Well, Stephen of Blois had a son who, if you insisted Stephen's claim was legit, mm. his son should have got it. Right. Was it a Eustace? He just happened to die as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Dangerous time in the Middle Ages. He may have been poisoned by some monks. Either way, the path was cleared <laughs> for Henry Fitzempress to, uh, to become King of England. And it seemed, uh, if you believe some of the accounts, a quick word on the accounts, there's people like Walter Mapp, Gerald of Wales, John of Salisbury, Richard Fitzneil, Peter of Blois, and many other people in the centuries after chronicled all this sort of thing. But so it's, it's actually, quite well attested, then. Yeah, there's quite a few people at the time that yeah. chronicled things at the time that, survived, that have survived, at least I in part. Because that's really lucky, because most of the time we've got to deal with literally one or two sources on whatever it is. So if we go back to William the Conqueror, for example, there's very little, mm. relatively little anyway, compared to this. Mm. So in the, actually now I could say that in the reigns of Henry II and Richard and John, um, we see sort of bit, a little bit of an explosion of the sources. Mm. They very deliberately patronised lots of chroniclers and historians and, and poets and all sorts of things. Mm. So as far as the historian is concerned, we've sort of fairly suddenly got a lot more to go on. Mm, wonderful. So that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, as any good cynical historian should be, you have to be careful of well, who's paying them to say that. History will be kind to Henry because he intends to write it. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> So, when it takes over, we're told, if you believe the accounts, that a lot of England rejoiced because they were like, if nothing else, yeah. the anarchy's over. Quite, and that seems very likely to me. Yeah. My God, and thank God there's no more troops of armed men coming through to conscript us or steal our provisions in order to go fight a battle I don't care about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if nothing else, assuming this new guy yeah. has got a strong hand, at least we can have, like, a government back. Yeah. Uh, because the anarchy, just very quickly to say, seems to have been really terrible. It wasn't just um, a few knights fighting each other. It turned into like widespread famine mm. and things. Mm. Um, like a true, true decline of the whole country, certainly in the south, where fields went untilled mm. and there was, there was famine yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was really quite bad. Um, so hopefully that, was, that would be over and there was apparently rejoicing in the streets and stuff. Um, and it looks like the young, this young new Henry is going to be strong or firm um, because the house of Anjou, house of Plantagenet, um, has got a reputation for being no pushovers. Mm. That, was, that is part of their reputation. Uh, but one quote here, the first of many from Churchill, he said, The accession of Henry II began one of the most pregnant and decisive reigns in English history. The new sovereign ruled an empire and, as his subjects boasted, his warrant ran from the Arctic Ocean to the Pyrenees. England to him was but one, the most solid, though perhaps the least attractive, of his provinces. But he gave to England that effectual element of external control, which, as in the days of William of Orange, 
was indispensable to the growth of national unity. He was accepted by English and Norman as the ruler of both races and of the whole country. The memories of Hastings were confounded in his person. And after the hideous anarchy of civil war between robber barons, all due attention was paid to his commands. Thus, thorough Frenchman, with foreign speech and foreign modes, he shaped our country in a fashion uh, of which the outline remains to the present day. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into it in a bit, but in all sorts of ways that's true. I mean, echoes of, yeah, sure, but certain things put in place by him, we still have, or at least were only done away with in the 19th or 20th century, mm. things like that. So, you know, lasted a long, 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 long time. Um, so, so one thing to say that, again, Nicholas Vincent pointed out, um, is that where he's got this sort of incredible, pretty incredible lineage, at least on his mother's side, on his father's side, he wasn't the son of a king, though. Yeah. So there's always that. So there's there's always this element, it seems, that he's got something to prove. Hmm. Um, or that um, it's just not the absolute perfect. You're not sort of born to the purple. Yeah. He had to wrest control, at least of the crown of England, off of Stephen of Blois, who himself was at some sort of usurper. Mm. So, you know, tit for tat, six one, half dozen of the other, swings and roundabouts. But nonetheless, his dad wasn't the anointed king. Mm. So that's something that historians have pointing at, pointed out. Um, Churchill goes on to say, After a hundred years of being the encampment of an invading army and the battleground of its quarrelsome officers and their descendants, England became finally and for all time a coherent kingdom based upon Christianity and upon the Latin civilization, which recalled the message of ancient Rome. Henry Plantagenet first brought England, Scotland and Ireland into a certain common relationship. He re-established the system of royal government, which his grandfather, Henry I, had prematurely erected. Uh, he relayed the foundations of a central power based upon the exchequer and the judiciary, uh, which was ultimately to supersede the feudal system of William the Conqueror. The king gathered up and cherished the Anglo-Saxon tradition of self-government under royal command in shire and borough. He developed and made permanent assizes, types of court, uh, you know, legal courts, uh, as they survive today. Quick notes say, up until 1972, when that was all done away with. Oh, really? Yeah, but Churchill was writing in the yeah. 40s, just after World War II. Right. Or perhaps just before. But Mike wrote it before and it was published after. Anyway, that was still the case up until 1972, incredibly. Um, It is to him we owe the enduring fact that the English-speaking race all over the world is governed by English common law rather than the Roman. I mean, that's something right there, isn't it? Yeah. Like I say, the shadow of his memory Mm. cast down through the centuries. Um, By his constitutions, uh, constitutions of Clarendon, he sought to fix the relationship of church and state and to force the church in its temporal character to submit itself to the life and law of the nation. In this endeavour, he had, after a deadly struggle, to retreat, and it was left to Henry VIII, those centuries later, to avenge his predecessor by destroying the shrine of St Thomas at Canterbury. So we'll get into all of that when we talk about, at least in passing, Thomas Beckett again. Yeah. Uh, But the constitutions of Clarendon, sort of in a nutshell, um, the king, the crown, the secular power is above the church. Yep. 
be in no doubt. And it's fair to say, isn't it, that that only really got properly decided by Henry VIII. There's always been a kind of spirit of it, though. There's always been a kind of strange, even even back to the Anglo-Saxon days, the, the English viewed their church as theirs, which is interesting. I mean, and I, I put it down to just being an island or something, I don't know. You know, mm. but there's, there's always been this weird sort of breakaway spirit in just the islands. Thing. Then there's that relationship between archbishops of Canterbury, or even the Pope himself from Rome, mm. um, trying to sort of dominate yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's at various been, times. It's always been a power struggle. Yeah. But the, the, the power of like self-determination has always been there and has always been influential. Mm. No, it's true. Yeah. To be honest, there are certainly examples throughout history in Europe, more often in Europe, mm. where a cardinal or an archbishop or someone or a particular pope mm. has really dominated all sorts of oh, yeah. crowns, kingdoms, all types of sovereignty, genuinely dominated them. Um, it's usually an unfair struggle. Usually it's not the case. Um, in Britain, rarely, really. Mm. I mean, the story of Beckett is one example of where, on some level, for a brief period, mm. it was, it didn't, it, at no point did he really stand above the king, but but there was a genuine struggle, at least you can say, a genuine, genuine struggle. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I, the, I can only think of the ways of the scar as like spirits of the thing, where it's like there's a kind of intonation in what they're asking for that, is at odds with the general spirit of the self-governing nature of the kingdom, right? And like, and you are you, you're totally right. Like, there are loads of very powerful popes or cardinals on the continent who have overawed kings, and that the the the, the sort of spread of that has always been very limited in England. I think. Mm. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a few examples of sort of overly powerful archbishops. Dunstan, maybe, uh, but it's it's fairly rare. Hmm. Um, it's quite rare. It's a lot more common on the continent. Uh, yeah. I can only assume it's because of proximity. Yeah, yeah, right. And it depends how sort of pious or submissive a king is. There might be a certain king somewhere, or it doesn't have to be a king. It could be a hmm. duke, but he's got complete sovereignty in his own fief. Hmm. Um, he just decides. He actively wants to be subservient to the pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he is. Yep. Yeah. Um, but the, I'm, I'm thinking of the general sort of theme because like the English have always had very parochial saints mm. you know like a lot of England's saints are English and yeah. it, whereas right. in other places actually the saint will be a foreigner who's come there to do something like St Patrick in Ireland and things like this and obviously St George isn't you know English well actually it was but anyway a uh, different story for another time uh, so he slayed Jesus. the dragon not far from here in Wiltshire it was he? very close actually. Yeah, that's, that's um, a historical fact but but there are loads of like actually you know English saints that would be mm. like little holy sites and stuff like that but it, it just we're a parochial little place and we always have been I just find that very adorable I mentioned St Dunstan just a moment yeah. ago yeah can't get much more yeah St Beckett yeah yeah <laughs> yeah St Thomas yeah um, so First of all, then, when he first, when Henry Fitz Empress first becomes king, he had a younger brother, Geoffrey, who tried to sort of claim oh, yeah. that he should probably have a big chunk of the inheritance in front. Like he, if he's going to go be king of England, he, Geoffrey, hmm. should 
by rights have Anjou and and Terrain, no. It's not a terrible uh, argument. Yeah. But obviously I'm I'm not gonna allow that. But Henry was like, yeah. no. Yeah. That's one of the things you've got to give to Henry. It's like it's a it's a strength, but also sometimes a weakness if taken too far, is that he didn't like to share power. Mm. Um not much of it anyway. And that gets him in some hot water. One of the things to say, I think, first of all, just to sort of set the tone a bit, is we've said it in all sorts of epochs, haven't we, that when you rule, when you've got a monarchy and it's sort of a personal rule, hmm. there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can either try and parcel out all the powers among your own family or, or the opposite, make sure you don't give anyone in your bloodline any power at all sort of thing. I guess there's, there's there's shades of grey between that, but... It depends on the kind of people that you're in you know, related to, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. So some, like Napoleon, for example, famously liked yeah. to give uh, dukedoms and kingdoms to his own family. Yeah. Uh, and then others, other times, what was it? Maybe some of the middle and later Turkish sultans would never give any power to their own kin. Yeah. Because they just didn't trust them. It's funny how that goes. Sometimes... Yeah. The only people you can trust is your family, and sometimes that's the last person you want to trust. Anyway, mm. Henry wanted to try and do it to keep it in the family. Didn't work, basically. No. Basically, that's it in the... Just the, in a nutshell. The biggest overview yeah. of the thing is that's how it went. Yeah, I mean, um, both, both of his sons revolt against him at some point. Spoilers, by the way. Yeah, all yeah. four. He had yeah. four boys oh, was in, four, in the end. Yeah, yeah okay. four boys. There's only two in the end. Yeah. But... Um, but we'll get into all of that. In fact, that's what I want to make the mainstay of this Epoch series, sure. is that. Yeah. Um, is sort of those struggles. Mm. Um, so, certainly after he became king of England, he sort of immediately already vastly increased his holdings, mm. his domains. Uh, from his father, Geoffrey, the Count of Anjou, he had Anjou and Maine and Touraine and that a bit of France. Hmm. But now suddenly he's got just m much, much, much bigger holdings, including obviously England. Now, England at that point, it actually didn't stretch all that far north. This is one of the ebbs when the, Scot the Scots were right. all the way down into not quite the Midlands, but all of what is now Northern England was yeah. actually being controlled by the Scots. Um, we didn't really control any of or didn't control any of Ireland. Hmm. Um, and so he's sort of on it for his, his paternal inheritance is like nothing to be sniffed at. Mm. You're sort of already straight away one of the power players in at least Western Europe. Then with his success in England against Stephen, he's suddenly blossomed to be much bigger. Then during his reign itself, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and expanding. And that's not even including his, his rights by marriage mm. to Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, which okay. is a massive chunk of what is now France anyway. Yeah. Very wealthy and desirable. Huge chunk. Yeah. Huge chunk of sort of southern, southwest yeah. Uh, France, yeah. Yeah, the Aquitaine and uh, Gascony and, well, all the way down to the Pyrenees. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, one thing that's come down to us through the centuries is quite a clear impression of what he looked like. Oh, okay. Now, we don't always get that, certainly in an early period. Hmm. Um, it seems that really early medieval chroniclers or quite a lot of ancient historians 
didn't seem to put a great deal of emphasis on describing what the person looked like. Yeah, I actually encountered this today because I was arguing with people on Twitter because it was announced that there'd be a Hannibal movie. Right. And uh, Denzel Washington was going to play Hannibal. And of course, I had people in the replies going, well, he was from Africa, wasn't he? Of course he was black. Now, I actually really like Denzel Washington as an actor, but Hannibal wasn't black. And he was, he was also 29 when he invaded Rome. So Denzel Washington is probably in his 60s at this point. So not the right person to choose. Maybe when he was young, he wouldn't have been terrible or anything. He probably would have actually been quite a good Hannibal, even though aesthetically it would have looked wrong. And so I thought, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll just pull up some Polybius and uh, just give you the description of Hannibal. It turns out there isn't one. Yeah, right, uh, it yeah. turns out that you've got a lot of description of Hannibal's character, but you don't have a physical description of what Hannibal looked like. And that might be because Polybius never saw Hannibal. Um, it might well be that he's just relying on third-hand accounts or second or third-hand accounts or something like that. Mm. Um, mm. But you can judge the character of the man by his actions and by what people said his intentions were and things like this. But mm. I mean, some mm. some ancient characters are famous for how they look, like Maximinus Thrax, famous for being just a giant, mm. you know, mm. a giant Thracian. So, it, you know, some of them, when it's very notable, you'll get a description, but most of the time it's not that notable mm. and you won't. Mm. And so it's like, okay... Uh, the thing that's sprung to mind while you're talking there is Antigonus, one of the Diadochi, well, who's supposed to, be, is, yeah, yeah. supposed to be really big and fat and one-eyed. Yeah. That immediately, just that, gives yeah. you some sort of yeah. idea, doesn't it? Yeah. You might get lucky where Alexander, for example, mm -hmm. there are contemporaneous busts made of him. Yep. So if you believe those, you've got the likeness of the man right there. Yeah. However, ancient historians, annoyingly, very, very often, just like Polybius, mm. don't give you anything. Might not give you anything. In Plutarch, Loads of times, there's a whole life of someone. It's yeah. like, well, but wait, what did yeah. you haven't said what he looks like at yeah. all? Not, he's not even hinted at. What it. am I picturing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, also, or, or they'll give you a very vague description. He's yeah. Like, he was yeah, a right. handsome youth. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But that doesn't tell me much. You know, Sulla had ruddy cheeks. Okay. But like, you know, <laughs> he's got red cheeks. I, I get it. But what does that mean? You know, mm. anyone could have red cheeks. <laughs> like, Anyway. Yeah, often you get nothing or you get like that one line just yeah. saying one thing about them and you're like, okay, I'll take it, but uh, yeah. I would have liked a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's why when you do get, though, a bit of ex a little bit of description physically of them, it's it's like gold, mm. you know. Mm. Um, I always think of that, um, that line, I can't remember, I think it might be in Suetonius, where it mentions Caesar's balding yeah and that he, he obviously tried to grow hair and cover it up and yeah. it was tr always trying to just yeah. put a little bit <laughs> like a little detail like yeah. that is sort of gold yeah for henry the second we've actually got a full-blown proper description right which right. is nice right mm -hmm. and he was supposed to be the first thing they always say is that he's red-haired mm. um uh, but churchill says this a vivid picture is painted of this gifted and for a while enviable man Square, thick neck, bull necked, oh, sorry, thick set, bull necked, with powerful arms and coarse rough hands, his legs bandy from endless riding, a large round head and closely cropped red hair, a freckled face, a voice harsh and cracked. Um, he was an intense lover of the chase and other loves which the church deplored and Queen Eleanor resented. He was a massive philanderer. Like, 12th century Norman king. Yeah, right. but even by those standards, a bit like... <laughs> even by those standards, yeah. Bad. Right, okay, yeah. Like, how yeah. aren't you riddled? 
Um, I, I don't have, you know, um, <laughs> I have great high regard for the chasteness of Norman Kings, I have to be honest. I'm not saying I blame them either. Um, he's supposed to have had frugality in food and dress. Hmm. Um, so one of the things is, um, yeah, he didn't, he didn't really go in for sort of ostentatious, Justinian the first style, yeah. endless gold and jewels, particularly. Um, Day is entirely concerned with public business. He did take the job of, of being king very seriously, mm. the job of, of governing. Um, uh, his travel was unceasing. Uh, his moods various. That's an understatement. Yeah. Um, it was said that he was always gentle and calm in times of urgent peril, but became bad-tempered and capricious when the pressure relaxed. Uh, he journeyed hot foot around his many dominions, arriving unexpected, unexpectedly in England when he was thought to be in the south of France. Everything was stirred and moulded by him in England and also in his other much greater estates, which he patrolled with tireless attention. See, one of the character traits I actually really admire are people who are calm in, a, in an emergency, even if they are a pain in the rear to deal with when everything's peaceful. Mm. Like that, that's fine. You know, mm. it's 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 when the when the the chips are down, and you need someone reliable in an emergency. That's you know you can you can put up with the insufferableness of their personality outside of it. I would say. I would have thought. I think this is fair to say, although I've never been a leader of men mm. <laughs> or commanded men in the field. But it seems to me, from everything I know, um, that you absolutely need to be calm under pressure. Mm. It, you have to. Yeah. It's, it's okay a, to spurg It's a prerequisite. Out. It's okay to spurg out when there's nothing important going right. on. But right. when everyone's lives are on the line, you have to be in control of yourself. It seems even to be a platoon or a company commander, you need mm. that. Oh, yeah. Let alone to be a colonel or a general or a king or something. Yeah. Um, Rewatching Band of Brothers the other day. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, if you can't keep your head as a company commander, mm. you're, you're useless. You're, in fact... You're way worse than useless. Yeah. You're going to get yourself and all your men killed yep. fairly quickly. Yep. So it's an absolute prerequisite. Um, there's a couple of times in Henry II's reign where it looks like all is lost in a way. It looks mm. like um, you can't come back from this. Yeah. And his, his sort of calm, calmness under insane pressure sees him through. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.